I love pointing out that, that the music to that song was written in the 16th century by a man named Louis Bourgeois, and he was John Calvin's hymn writer. And he was often accused of bringing contemporary music into church <laughs> in the 16th century. So, we're reading this morning. This morning's going to be a little bit different. You know, I was, I've been preaching for about 20 years, and I can't remember a time in the 20 years' time that I have ever preached a topical sermon, right, as opposed to sort of just going through a passage. This morning's going to be more topical. We'll see what happens in the Ten Commandments, you know, when this kind of thing happens. I'll let you know. So it's going to be a little different, but we're going to open by reading the Ten Commandments. You'll find the Ten Commandments on one side of a sheet of paper in your order of worship that says sermon notes. And on the other side, you have question 99 from the Westminster Larger Catechism. I'm actually going to refer to that a number of times, and I actually gave it to you so that you can use it after today. So uh, with all that said, I say to you, hear the word of God from Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning um, that as we consider your law, we, can, we, we consider uh, how to best use your law and how, how uh, to best understand your law and its application to our life and, and where that fits in with the gospel. I pray that you would make things abundantly clear. Where I, I, I am messy, I pray that you would clean things up. I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that, that uh, many would be overwhelmed this morning with the weight of the law. And in like manner, I pray that they would be overwhelmed by the weight of glory and grace and mercy upon them as well. Father, I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You know, this, um, this summer, actually as of la- this past Friday at noon, 
Judy and I became empty nesters, probably for about nine months when the two graduate, and who knows, they'll probably come home. But empty nest nonetheless. And on one hand, it's been great, and you know, there's been times that are bittersweet. And, and on, on the other hand, what we've had to figure out too is some intersection on some areas. For example, what is, there, is there any kind of intersection between, say, Downton Abbey and The Sopranos? You're going to watch something. And honey, what do you want to watch tonight? How about call the midwife? Call who? So what we've sort of settled on is documentaries. Couple, <laughs> it's, I, it's, it's more fun than it sounds, trust me. But, and a few weeks ago, we watched a documentary that I'm going to be, warn you right now, I'm, I'm going to ruin it for you. It's on Netflix. You can look it up if you want. I'm going to ruin it for a couple of reasons. One is because it was not very good, and I want to save you an hour of your life. And number two, it just worked so well this morning. I'm a preacher. I couldn't help it. You see, probably about five or six years ago, my oldest daughter read a book called Born to Run. Have you seen this book? It's basically about barefoot running. And you know, it's controversial, of course, because they, the, the author's name is Chris McDougall, and his research and, and what have you says literally, that human beings were born to run. That, that all of our physiology, everything about us makes it so that we are actually uh, more natural runners almost than anything else in the animal kingdom. And, you know, it's because we, we don't have hairy bodies, and so we can sweat, and we can, you know, sort of run forever if we want to. That's different than a lot of animals. In fact, he tells of tribes in Africa to this day, and historically, that the way they would hunt is they would run animals to death. Okay, so you're, in, you're somewhere in the plains of Kenya, somewhere, and you've come upon a, an antelope, and you, you and four or five of your best buddies, you just start chasing this thing. And because humans were born to run, you sweat and can keep going. And eventually, the, in theory, the antelope will just get so hot because they're, not, they're born to sprint, not run. They will just keel over and die. They'll just get overwhelmed with the heat, and their hearts will explode, and they'll just die. So, of course, someone had to try this. Professional runners in New Mexico, they made a documentary about it called Fair Chase. And it's basically three or four professional runners, sort of like your, your upscale, they, they seem like sort of yuppie, kind of college types, and a couple of Kenyan guys who've actually done this before. And what was interesting is the guys who were leading this expedition never listened to the Kenyan guys. And so basically, they read this book and they said, well, we need to test the concept to see if human beings could actually run an antelope to death. And we're going to try that in the desert of New Mexico. You have to do it in the heat of the day, by the way, because the whole point is to make the, the animal overheat and keel over. And so eventually, during, as they were out planning it, the Kenyans would pipe in every now and then and go, it's not so easy. You might come home without anything. We'd, most of the time you do. And the guy's like, oh, as long as you just run. Everyone can, you guys are all ultra runners. Yep, as long as you can run further than the antelope, you're good to go. And so they did. They pick the day. They go down to, the, to basically the desert, and they spot a pronghorn antelope, which apparently is the second fastest land animal. And they say to themselves, okay, that's the one. And they eventually separate him from, from the herd, and they start running after this thing. And they run for 18 miles. And just about the time that they think the antelope might be giving out, and the antelope's going to get tired, he's going to keel over, the antelope goes over a small ridge, and they follow him over the ridge, and when they get over the ridge, there is a herd of pronghorn antelope. <laughs> a herd. Guess where their antelope is? They don't know. 
And then suddenly another antelope just sprints out the back. And the Kenyans say, well, sometimes they replace them with a fresh one. <laughs> and so these guys are just completely dejected. That's not the, the end. <laughs> you expect that they're going to try again and go from their lessons. And the only thing, there are about two minutes left of the thing. And someone asks the leader of this expedition, they say to him, you know, what, so, so what do you think? You know, what, how, would you, how would you review this whole event? And he said, well... I think what we learned is that there's a lot more to catch an antelope than just running. You'd think that's obvious, but it wasn't to them. In other words, they thought, as long as I can just run further than that antelope can run, it's going to work out fine. They didn't count on terrain. They didn't count that there might be a thousand other antelope waiting to hide their buddy you've been running for. They didn't count on any of that. Now, if, by the way, if they'd have listened to the Kenyans, they could have, but that's another story. Why do we bring all of that up? How does it work with God's law? Let me ask you this question. When's the last time you ever tried to obey the Ten Commandments? Let me make it easier for you. When's the last time you ever tried to obey one of the Ten Commandments? And when I say that, I mean, you really tried. Like, you really feel convicted about something. You know, maybe you're, you're the, the way you speak about people or something. And you say, I'm just not going to, you know, I'm going to obey today. How did you do? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and confess to you guys, any and every time I've ever tried to do that, it has not gone very well. At least I didn't get to the end of the day going, man, that was great, I did such a good job at X. What I end up usually saying is the same thing that those runners said about the antelope. You know, I think obeying the Ten Commandments, it, it, it's a little bit more complicated than just running. It's a little bit more complicated than just obeying. You know, we tend to try and be black and white, and we say, I'm going to obey, or I'm not going to obey. And what you learn as you delve into the Ten Commandments, that it's a much more complicated than that. The question is, how, how can we obey? And is there any help to obey? What, is going to do today? what do we do with that? Well, today, basically, my hope is today that we'll look at the purpose of the Ten Commandments. I'll remind you of the purpose, and then we'll give you and me some ways to actually uh, have some hope in accomplishing obedience to the Ten Commandments, or some hope in actually living them out that we might live our purpose. Remember what I told you the purpose of the Ten Commandments was? If you look at the Ten Commandments in context, God has, has delivered Israel out of Egypt and from bondage and slavery, and he said, I'm going to make you a light to the nations, a holy nation, and a, a priesthood, a kingdom of priests, and you basically will be my emissaries to the rest of the world, that you will help me in the redemption of all of the world and all of creation. And it, you know, if, you, if you think about it, you suppose, now what, what does that look like? How are we supposed to do that? The very next thing God tells them is the Ten Commandments. In other words, the ten, why were the Ten Commandments given? They were given to preserve and equip God's people in their mission to bless the nations. That at the end of the day, purpose or, or mission, however you want to use the word, it drives everything. That God didn't give us law just so that we could be obedient for no good reason. He didn't just give us law so that we would only ever be pleasing to him. He gave us law because he's actually intent on accomplishing something in the lives of people around us and in the whole, all of creation. And so he has given the church, ultimately, uh, his law to preserve and equip God's people as they tr bless the nations. So with all that said, we're going to look basically at three things when we talk about the law. Now, I know some of you are... are engineers or mathematicians, and you're going, that's three things, and each of the three things have three things. That's nine things, right? 
That's true. You don't have to tell me on the way out. You got me. On the other hand, it's going to be quicker. Uh, you know, we're sort of going to give a broad sweep. We're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at three types of law that are given in the Old Testament because sometimes they're confused. And if, if you understand what the types of law are, you can sort of understand your relationship to them better. And then finally, we're going to, or secondly, we're going to look at three guidelines. Actually, the sheet I gave you has eight guidelines from the Westminster Larger Catechism. We're going to look at three. I've sort of conflated them so that you can remember them. So you'll see when we get there. And then finally, we're going to look at what the three uses of the law are. In other words, historically, the church and, and the church fathers and mothers, I guess I've always said, there are basically three ways that the law is used. So we're going to look at three types of law, three guidelines on how to, how to interpret or use the law, and then how you actually use it. So what, when we talk about three types of law, uh, what do we mean by that? Basically, theologians and biblical scholars say there's three types of law in the Old Testament. There's moral law, there's judicial law, and there is ceremonial law. Okay, I'm actually going to go in reverse order that you have there. I'm going to do it differently than I did the first service. The first, the first type of law to think about is ceremonial law. When you look at the Old Testament, there are a lot of laws that have to do with the way sacrifices are done and the way that, that humanity approaches God, or at least Israel approaches God. You know, you have laws for, for dimensions of the temple. You have laws for days of feasting. You have laws for worship. You have laws for all of this ceremony. And the question is, are those still relevant to us today? And the answer is yes and no. They're relevant to us in the sense that they point us to Jesus. They show us shadows and types of Jesus on one hand. On the other hand, Jesus has come and fulfilled all of them. In other words, why don't, why don't we as a church obey all the laws for sacrifice and all the laws for, for different types of offerings? We do that because Jesus has fulfilled them all. In fact, Jesus came and said he would fulfill them all, not, and not just ceremonial, but also judicial and moral. What are the judicial laws? Judicial laws are just that. Judicial laws were given to govern Israel in a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular uh, culture. In, in other words, they're sort of, in some sense, historically bound. The, the, can we derive principles from them that, to help us live better lives and to help us be better people? Sure, we can derive principles from them. But we're not bound to them in a legalistic fashion. In other words, I asked for a show of hands. I only got a couple last service. So how many of you have actually stoned one of your children for talking back? Okay, no one in this service. Good for you. Um, in, in other words, those are the kinds of laws. When I talk about judicial laws, those are the kinds of things I'm talking about. right? Some of you are going, I have thought about it. right? Okay, I have to. Right? But um, <laughs> just kidding. Not very often. Um, but the judicial laws were given to Israel in order to govern the way they behaved in the face of, of the particular nations. Well, Israel as a nation, at least the way it did in the Old Testament, doesn't exist as a spiritual nation necessarily. That the church has, has, has been uh, basically co-opted into Israel. There's a new Israel and the person and work of Jesus. And so those laws, while we can learn from them, they're not binding to us in the sense that we hope to actually get there someday. And you see that basically you're going to find, when you look at errors, there's one error that says eventually Jesus is going to come back, and when he comes back, the temple is going to be restored, and we're going to restore all these ceremonies again. That's, I don't think that's true. And there's another stream of thought on the other end of the continuum when you read theology that says when Jesus comes back, all the Old Testament laws are going to be restored, and we're going to be back to the, that norm. I don't think that's true either. 
Jesus came, and in his coming, he fulfilled them all, and we don't need many of them now. We learn from them, yes, but do we apply them literally? No. That brings us to the moral law. What is the moral law? The moral law is the Ten Commandments. The moral law is that law which God has given to govern how we interface with the nations and our neighbors. And the moral law is eternal. The moral law is forever. In other words, it doesn't go away. Let me read you what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He was talking to the Pharisees, of course, arguing about the law. And he says to them, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is very specifically in that context talking about commandments. Remember, the whole Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus not giving them new commandments, but giving them a correct interpretation of the, what they thought was the, the right commandments. In other words, he says, you've heard it said that don't commit adultery, but I say. We'll talk about a lot of that in a moment. Remember the Apostle Paul, the, the one who, who fought for free grace and who fought for, for not adding anything to the person and work of Jesus when we looked at the book of Acts. He gets to a point in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, where he's, he's telling them that they need to get along. And he says, in, I think it's verse 18 or 19, he says there, he says, you know, at the end of the day, it's not circumcision nor lack of circumcision that matters, but keeping God's commandments. So even God's apostle of grace thinks it's important to keep the commandments. And so when you look at the moral law, the moral law is something that, that it was fulfilled in Jesus on one hand. On the other hand, it's still something that governs us. It's still something that governs our behavior. Remember uh, Peter said last week, he said, your behavior ought to be such in front of the world that, that even though they speak against you, that they glorify God because of you. So the moral law is something that continues now, and it, we use it in a bunch of different ways. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So when you see the three types of law and you realize that ceremonial and judicial have sort of been abrogated and fulfilled, moral law has not been done away with, but in fact, it's been enhanced. And so what are we going to talk about now? We're going to look at the three guidelines for interpreting the law, or at least the three I'm going to give you. And you're going to look on the back of this paper in a minute, the larger catechism. There's a lot of theological language and terminology, and I spent a long time thinking through, how can I boil this down so that someone like me could remember what this is talking about? And so we're going to basically look at three guidelines, the guideline of cups, the guideline of coins, and the guideline of categories. Okay, the guideline of cups, the guideline of coin, and the guideline of categories. When I say guideline of cups, what do I mean? Let me read to you the, the number two, if you look at your sheet on the back of this. When it's talking about the law, it says, Since it is spiritual, the law involves our understanding, our will, our emotions, and all other faculties of the soul, as well as our words, actions, and self-expressions. So what do they mean by that? Well, I think they mean what Jesus meant when he talked to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11. He says, you, you Pharisees, he says, the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside of the cup is full of greed and wickedness. In other words, you guys care about the outside of the cup, but really what's important is also the inside of the cup. And in the Pharisees' case, they'd say the inside is dirty. 
In other words, what one, the first guideline, the guideline of cups says this, is that what's going on inside of you is just as important as what is happening on the outside of you. That, that your, your confirmation or the, the way you're able to, to externally conform to the law, it's just as important that you are internally conformed to the law as well. And that, that's what undid the Apostle Paul, if you remember correctly. Remember what the Apostle Paul said about himself? He said in Philippians, he said, when it comes to the law, I was blameless. Just blameless. When it came to external conformity to the law, I was blameless. And I would argue that he would have considered himself blameless in, with regard to commandments 1 through 9. Because with the 10th commandment, God did something that no other ancient Near Eastern culture had seen. In other words, lots of ancient Near Eastern cultures came up with laws, and they came up with codes of laws, and all of them had to do with external conformity to some kind of law. And with the 10th commandment, God did something that no other nation had seen. As he said, he gave them a law that had to do nothing with the outside. Right? 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. There's no way to externally conform yourself to not coveting. Coveting is a completely internal sin. And what the law of cups said is that God is just as concerned with the inside that he is at the outside. And so you remember what the Apostle Paul says in Romans? He said, I wouldn't have known what coveting was except for the law. In other words, he spent all this time being externally conformed to the law, and at some point he actually realized through the work of the Holy Spirit that his inside did not match his outside. And when you're interpreting the law, you're seeking to understand it, you're seeking to use it. One, the first thing you need to realize is that it has just as much application to what's going on inside of you as it does to what's going on outside of you. And that's what Jesus did with the Sermon on the Mount in a lot of places. Remember what he said about adultery? He said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, if you've even thought about it, you're guilty. Jesus is saying what you're thinking about, what's going on in your heart and your soul and your mind and your emotions, that also comes under the scope of the law, the moral law. And so the, the, the guideline of cups says the inside is just as important as the outside. What's the guideline of, of coins? The guideline of coins basically says this. I'm going to read to you the Westminster, verse, chapter, uh, number four of that question. It says, when something is required, the opposite is forbidden. For where a specific sin is forbidden, its opposite is required. In the same way, when a requirement of law adds a promise of some blessing for obeying it, that promise also includes a threat for disobeying it. And when a threat is added, an opposite promise is included. Just if you want to remember that, remember the guideline of coins. That what does a coin have? A coin has two different sides, but both of them are trying to accomplish the same thing, right? They are one coin. And so what this is saying is that when it, whatever a commandment says something negative, like thou shalt not steal, for example, the positive outworking of that same commandment is also expected of us. So, for example, if the commandment says, thou shalt not steal, what's the positive outworking? What's the opposite of thou shalt not steal? It's probably something like giving, right? The opposite of stealing, if you shouldn't steal, what's the positive outwork? It's probably something like giving or being generous, that when Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about murder, he doesn't end by saying, thou shalt not murder, because it's just a bad thing. What does he say? The, the, the culmination of his teaching on murder is reconciliation. 
It's the positive outworking of the command as well. And that's where, I mean, honestly, that's where I start to feel the weight of some of these commands because it's very easy to go through life and say, well, I didn't, I didn't commit adultery. What's the opposite of adultery? It's faithfulness and graciousness and love toward your, your spouse, right? Have I been that? I don't know. I can, say, I can look at myself and say, you know, I've gone, through this, I've gone through, I don't know, 30 years, I've stolen a thing. Well, if the positive outworking of thou shalt not steal is being generous and giving, have I always been generous and giving? No. And if I haven't, then I've also broken the, I've broken the stealing commandment. Do you see how big the law can eventually become when you do that? That, the, the, that when you look at the law as, as having a both positive and negative outworking, we tend to only look at one or the other, and we tend to think if we get one right, we're okay. And you've heard me tell the story. Jack Miller loved to tell this story as well. He was the founder of Sonship Ministries, and he would do this exercise with people called the tongue exercise. And he did it in Russia one time, and he tells a story. He sits in front of a bunch of Russians, and the tongue exercise says this, and you can do it this week if you want, if you want to have a lot of fun with yourself. Go home. And for a whole week, don't say anything negative. Don't say anything cynical. Don't lie. Don't gossip. Don't spin the truth. Don't say anything negative about another human being. And go home and see how long that lasts. Remember I told you I did it with a guy at Lily one time, and he came back in an hour and said, I'm going to hell, man. It's difficult. And he tells a story about coming back after a week and asking this, this group of, of Russian Christians, how many of you made it uh, through an hour? You know, a couple people raised their hands. How many people made it through a day? No one raised their hands except one guy. He said, really, how many made it through the whole week? One guy had his hand up, and he kept his hand up. And he said, you made it the whole week without lying, gossiping, saying anything negative, being cynical, being sarcastic, saying anything. And the man said, yep. And he said, how did you do it? He said, I didn't talk to anybody. And you know what Jack Miller said? You still fail. Because every command has a positive outworking as well. So the, the positive outworking of don't lie, steal, gossip, or lie, gossip, and, and, and discourage people and be sarcastic, what's the positive? Well, the positive side of that is to bless people, to encourage people, to speak life into people. In other words, you can't get away with just not doing something. The commandment always Offers, asks us to not just stop doing one thing, but also to positively do the other thing, or vice versa. Right? So you've got cups, you've got coins, and then lastly, you've got categories. If it doesn't feel weighty enough, I told my wife this week, at some point I came home and she said, are you doing okay? And I said, it's just getting heavy <laughs> in my office. Because when you consider the, the concept of categories, it sort of makes the law inescapable for us. Notice number six on the catechism. It says, The prohibitions against specific sins and the commandments to observe specific obligations are typical and so cover not just those particular sins or obligations, but all others of the same kind. In other words, each of the Ten Commandments represents a category of sins. It it just doesn't represent adultery. It just doesn't represent stealing. It just doesn't represent lying. But they represent a category of sins. And so... If you want your mind blown, you, you can find it on like the, the epc.org or the webpage. You can download the larger catechism for free. And they have what they put as the positive and negative outworking of every single command. And so, for example, when you get to thou shalt not bear false witness, in about 10-point font, 
when it says what things are prohibited by the, ten, by the ninth commandment, it's about two-thirds of a page of stuff. And it's like, whoa. You see, because when you think about the category, it suddenly it just explodes. Jesus did the same thing. When Jesus was talking about murder, remember he says that you've heard it said don't murder, but I say if you have anger against your brother. So suddenly anger is under the murder category. Right? You've heard it said not have adultery, but I say if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you're now guilty. Well, suddenly lust is also under the adultery category. And the categories just continue to expand as you look at them. And so when you get under this kind of weight, what do you do? You see, we're trying to apply the law, I think, positively. But unless we understand a few other things, the law can be nothing, it ends up being nothing but just this huge, it's a drag, frankly. Because you start to think about, am I, am I as clean on the inside as the outside? No. Do I do the positive about working as, as much as I do the negative? No. Do I, do, do I understand that all these categories also make me a breaker of law as well? Well, yeah. On the one hand. On the other hand, hopefully by the end, we'll see that there is also a positive outworking to how these, these categories and coins and cups work as well. But we have to look at how they're used by us, by the church so we'll look at three uses of the law, finally. And the, the basic, I got these words from uh, Philip Ryken. That's the way he, he uses to describe them. He puts them in a different order. He teaches them in a different order. He teaches them in the same order as John Calvin. I actually put them in the order that I thought they should go in. And then I went back looking at historical documents, of course, to justify my <laughs> decision. And Martin Luther did what I did this morning. So, so we're going to start at where uh, Martin Luther would start, and then we're going to work our way through the rest of the uses. So basically, when you think about how do we use the law to, to complete the purpose God has given us, it basically has three uses, and in that use, it's used as a muzzle, it's used as a mirror, and it's used as a map. And it's used as a muzzle, it's used as a mirror, and it's used as a map. So first use, what do we mean when we say the law is used as a muzzle? What is a muzzle used for? Right, to, re to restrain evil. Right, the, why do you put a muzzle on a dog so it can't do bad, so it can't bite? By the way, I found when I was looking, if I had this dog, I would probably get that muzzle. Um, made, <laughs> she made me laugh. <laughs> but if you think about it, if a dog's bad, aren't you happy that it has a muzzle because you know it can't hurt you? Well, historically, one of the, the primary uses of the three uses is to, the law acts as a muzzle or it restrains wickedness. In, in other words, even when we read the Ten Commandments at the end of it, what was Israel's response to it? Fear. And Moses said, good. God has given you this and he, he's given you this fear that he might test you to see if you're going to obey them. So part of the, the, the way that the law restrains is that it causes fear that there might be consequences if I break it. And I don't mean that just in the context of the Ten Commandments in the church, but I mean that in even society. Because you might say, well, how does the law restrain people who don't know the Ten Commandments or haven't read the Ten Commandments? Remember what Paul says in Romans, he says those people are a law to themselves. In other words, they have their own, they, they have some set of standards. Most often it looks like the Ten Commandments, but even to the extent that it doesn't, they still have a conscience that goads them when they deviate from it. And so one of the things the law does is it pricks our consciences to let us know that this probably isn't the right thing you ought to be doing. And because of that, it restrains wickedness. And even the threat of punishment restrains wickedness. So, I, for example, um, when, when you put uh, speeding signs out on 167, 
my, my hope is that the only reason those speeding signs aren't there is so that I, the county can't make money off of me when I speed. But that at the end of the day, the real reason behind that, the purpose behind speeding signs, is actually to say, Tommy, if you break the law, you will be punished because breaking the law might cause harm to other people. So a lot of the laws we're given, in fact, most of the laws we're given are to deter wickedness. We don't want the consequences of what happens when we break them. So the law acts as a muzzle. Second thing we see the law acting as is a mirror. Now, what do you use a mirror for? Use a mirror to look at, at yourself. And hopefully, if it's a decent mirror, you can see yourself. Have you ever done this? Have you ever stared in a mirror for a long time? I have. Come on. Everyone's looking at me like I'm crazy. You, stay, you look in the mirror and you be, because some, something catches your eye, like you realize that one of your ears is bigger than the other one. Or something. I remember when I was doing woodworking, all bit, I used all hand tools, and I looked in the mirror and suddenly I realized that one of my, like this side of my body was bigger than this side. And it was just weird. So I could see that there were flaws in me. That's what the law does for us as well. When we stare into the law... It shows us where the dirt is. It shows us where we missed a spot. Now, by the way, a mirror can't clean you. A mirror can't, can't do anything but show you where the problem is. And the closer you look at the mirror, the more you see the problem. In fact, I would, I would argue the more you look in the mirror, the more problems you see. So that's it's probably why a lot of guys don't spend a lot of time in front of the mirror. It's just easier not to. And yet what the law does is it shows us where we miss the mark. And showing us where we miss the mark, it drives us to Christ. You see, if you use all the three things, the guidelines I gave you negatively, and you use them honestly, there is no other thing that can happen other than you feel pretty overwhelmed by the law. Because you and I simply do not meet the standard. I don't meet the standard of just the Ten Commandments, let alone the inside and outside and the positive and the negative and all of the categories that I can't even keep track of. It's overwhelming to me. And being overwhelmed, one of the uses of the laws as it, it be, is a mirror is it drives us to Jesus. And when we get to Jesus, what we see is something altogether different. You see, one of the things that happened to me this week as I stared into the law is I think I actually came to know Jesus a little better. Right? That seems odd in the Presbyterians, right? We're either law or grace. But you see, the more you stare into the law, I know you not only see your own wickedness, you not only see your own where you fall short, but if you really stare at the law, you start to understand all the things that Jesus did. That when we say Jesus lived a perfect life and he did obeyed perfectly, I think that just sort of rolls off our tongue really easily. But when you really consider the law and you begin to stare into the law, you realize that when Jesus, it says that Jesus obeyed perfectly, is it, what that means is not only did he not commit adultery, but he didn't look on a woman with lust in her heart. Not only did he not covet, but he was actually completely uh, satisfied with what he had. In other words, he had all of these things right. He obeyed them right. He was clean on the inside. He did the positive and the negative outworking. And he actually obeyed every commandment and every category. And then gave it all up on the cross. I mean, think about the work it takes. I, I talk for myself. Think about the work it takes me to try and avoid one sin unsuccessfully. Makes me tired. 
And Jesus lived his whole life completely and utterly obedient to the Father in every manner imaginable. And then having done that, instead of grasping for his own good, instead of saying, now where is my reward? He went to the cross and took the curse and the punishment that you and I deserve. And the more you stare in the law, you realize that you actually did deserve it on one hand. On the other hand, you realize that what he has done for you is enormous. And after that, you become pretty motivated to, be, to live a life of thankfulness. But there's more than that, because you often get to a point where people say, well, when you look at Jesus has done, it's going to motivate you to do the right thing just because you are so thankful. I don't know about you, but for me, thankfulness lasts. You know, it's pretty fleeting. So we've got to have something else, and that's what we look at next, the positive outworking here. You see, on one hand, the law is, is a muzzle, and it's a mirror. It shows us where we miss the mark. But positively speaking, it's a map. And what does a map do? A map orients you. A map gives you direction. I love this map. This is supposedly a real treasure map that someone found. And you probably can't see it from where you're sitting, but in the water parts, it says, there be dragons. You know what the law tells you? It, it not only orients you, and it tells you the, the right direction to go, but it tells you where the dragons are too. That's why it's, read the book of Proverbs. If you wonder why the, the, one of the Ten Commandments is do not commit adultery, read the book of Proverbs. There be dragons there. It will kill you. The law directs us to all of these things. But what's one of the thing we need to keep in mind is that much the same way with Israel, it's with us. Remember I told you that the law always begins with grace. That God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, here are the Ten Commandments. That he doesn't say obey them in order to be saved. He says obey them because you have been saved. And that's the same with us. We do not obey the Ten Commandments or, or, or the law or the categories in order to get Jesus' favor. We try and obey them because we have Jesus' favor. And we have a couple things that are given to us that I think we often overlook. You see, you can't do any of this. You can't, you, any of the things that I've told you this morning, you can't do ultimately without some help. The first help that we are given, frankly, is the Holy Spirit. That gratitude is just not enough to make you want to obey. You might obey fleeting, but you need someone there who's constantly with you, who reminds you the fact that you are united to Christ and who is constantly teaching you and guiding you. Jesus says we have that, that he's given us the Holy Spirit. The other thing, though, is we need each other. In other words, if you think that you can just you, that, that you can be a good Christian, if you will, that you can be an obedient Christian, and you go to church and you read the Bible and you do all these things, but you're not really in relationship with other people, you will fail. In fact, you need everyone needs a ranger buddy. Frankly, I, you know, let me read to you. Um, Number seven of these guidelines, it says, since provisions of the law apply not only to us, but to everyone else, we must try to help others keep those provisions in the context of our own position in life and theirs. The reason I gave you this too, because it has all the proof texts with it, that if you really want to apply the law to your life, you need someone to help you. You need a ranger buddy. Yeah, that, that was on my mind. Yesterday I was at, um, there's a ranger breakfast once a month here in near, uh, it's in Tacoma because 2nd Ranger Battalion is there and it's all former 
rangers. And at the end of the breakfast, you know, everyone, of course, sits around telling the same old stories and back when we were hard and all this kind of stuff. And, um, but at the end of the meeting, it almost became like a camp meeting, interestingly enough, because there's a time when guys can stand up and share about their business or this or that. And one guy got up and gave a pretty interesting testimony about sort of being down and out. And um, the discussion turned to the topic of suicides. I don't know if you knew, but according to the Veterans Administration, about 22 vets a day commit suicide. And a disproportionate number of those come from special operations units. And so there was a lot of talk yesterday about how we can take care of people who are hurting. And that you know, we need to be ranger buddies for each other. And then it reminded me literally of my ranger buddy. When you go to ranger school, they assign you someone that you're not allowed. If you want to fail, you have to you get, get an arm's length away from your ranger buddy and get caught. Now think about it, you're going to an incredibly miserable school and you can't leave someone's side the whole time. On one hand, that's hard. On the other hand, you can't make it without that person. My ranger buddy's name was John Kraft from Syracuse, New York. And I'll never forget when he saved me one day. He didn't just save my life, he saved me from quitting. I was, I was hypothermic. We had gone through a river crossing at about 30-degree weather, and we got to the other side, and I said, Kraft, I quit. Go get the ranger instructor. I'm done. And I don't remember if he slapped me or not, but I do remember him stripping me down naked and putting my plastic rain clothes on me and putting my uniform on top of that so no one would see it. And if you wear straight plastic against your skin, you get warm pretty quickly. And I came to my senses, and what do you know? I didn't want to quit anymore. If it hadn't been for him intervening, I would have failed. Now, to be fair, if it hadn't been for me intervening, he would have burned himself to death one day as well. So I, thought, I always thought that was interesting, uh, that I saved him from burning and he saved me from freezing. But the fact is, we saved each other. It works the same way when you look at the, the Bible. God didn't just give us Jesus, and he didn't just give us the gospel. He didn't just give us the Holy Spirit, but he actually gave us each other. And so I leave you today with this question, and I want you to really think about it, is who is your ranger buddy? And I don't, don't say my wife is, or my husband is. They might be one to you, and they might do that, but you need someone else to, who is there in this world who is willing to help you live out the Ten Commandments in the context of the gospel? Who is willing to intervene when they see you going south? Who loves you so much that they're willing to actually face your wrath for stopping them? Do you have someone like that in your life? If you don't, I advise you to, to pray about it, seek that. I'm excited. One of the, the great things that are going on, you'll see more and hear more about, is just how many people are getting involved in community groups and getting involved in each other's lives. So think about that. Uh, next week, we start on the first commandment. And it is pure, the, the pure providence of God the, the first commandment is going to be on the opening day of football season. You shall have no other gods before me. Um, that wasn't on purpose, but God knows what he's doing. So uh, let me pray for us. Father, I just pray that we, as we consider the, the commandments, on one hand, it just seems like, yeah, Ten Commandments. But on the other hand, as we consider them, they just get deeper and deeper and deeper and we learn more of your character. We learn more of the person work of Jesus. We learn more of our need for the Holy Spirit. We learn more of our need for each other. Father, I pray that you just continue to build upon these things as we actually enter into the commandments in the next uh, few months. Father, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen.